Welcome to this talk from the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Canon Do's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G. So this talk is called A Mind of Winter. And in preparing it, I was inspired by listening to a recent talk by Misha that was called Practicing Loss. I found this to be a very touching lecture that she gave, and it resonated with me deeply. And it inspired a lot of reflection for me. As Diane mentioned, when she was introducing me, I live in the south of France. I used to live for a little while in the Bay Area. And now now I'm here and I live in the countryside. And so the, the countryside here in January is to me quite a different experience of winter to the one that I had when I was living in California. And moreover, living in the countryside and experiencing winter here is different from experiencing it in an urban or suburban setting. There's a way in which on a daily basis, I experience winter really in the landscape. And the winters here are not particularly harsh, though they're not as subtle as they are in California, I would say either. It's cold here. It doesn't, it doesn't snow. But what I've noticed is that it becomes very gray, not just in the sky, but on the land. We have some evergreen trees around us that stay green the whole year round. And then there are many trees that lose all of their leaves in the winter and become bare and brittle. And somehow the whole color of the landscape changes. It's, there's more brown. If I had to paint it, I would use browns and blues and grays. It's very subdued, very muted. And there's this sort of smell that accompanies it, the houses that are in proximity to where we are seem to heat themselves by burning wood. We don't have a wood burner here in our house, but I can feel that the houses around us do. And so there's a smell of smoke as well in the cold air that accompanies the visuals so it, it makes for a very atmospheric period. And so I was thinking about the way that we are in winter, you know, what winter does for us, like the way that it changes our rhythms and activities.
And so I was thinking about it also in, in the context of Misha's talk, like I mentioned, in the context of loss and in the context of practicing with that. And this poem came to me. Um, it's a fairly well-known poem by Wallace Stevens. So I'll start by reading the poem and then I'd like to offer some reflections around the poem. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun. Not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind. In the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. I'll read that one more time. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with the snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. So I really, this poem really grabbed me. Um, I will also add that I really love winter. I, uh, my daughter was born in winter and I gave her the name winter. It's her middle name. And so for me that the question around the image of what is a mind of winter? What is a mind of winter? What is it to be cold for a long time? Like he says in the poem. To have really known the cold. What is that? And this beautiful imagery in the poem of everything that's frozen over and the distant sun. Now the sun's the sun's far away at this time of year. We don't feel its warmth so strongly. And this figure, you know, this this person, this listener, who is this figure in the snow who is beholding? this winter landscape and listening to the wind. 
Are they sitting in the snow? Have we ever sat in the snow and tried to be warmed by that distant January sun? So this is this is kind of my question. Like what is the mind of winter? <clears throat> it's a for me it's a beautiful question, like a koan. A koan is a beautiful question. So the first thing, the mind of winter is a mind that is intimate with suffering. It's the mind that might have been cold a long time. It's a mind that has known suffering. Here in France, when you're driving through the countryside, you'll often come across these long stretches of road um, in the open countryside that if any of you have been here and driven here, you'll, you'll have noticed that are lined with plane trees. And there's, there's so many, you know, there's just tons of them. And there's all sorts of stories as to how that came about. But I think it's mostly accepted that they're over 100 years old. And they serve the purpose in the summer when they have all their full leaves of creating a shade over the road. But in the winter, they're completely bare, completely bare. I mean, they, they absolutely appear to be dead. You know, so in, in the sense of which they, they sort of represent that, that feeling of death around winter, um, the, the, the absence, the, the loss that is incarnate in the season. And it can be a difficult time for many people in and of itself, just the season, the, the long nights, the lack of light, the lack of warmth the distant glitter of the January sun. The trees are bare. In some cases, there's snow and frost. Everything is frozen. If you journey east to the Sierra Mountains, that's probably how it is right now. Many of the birds have, have flown They've gone south and then some other animals just go to sleep. They just sleep it out. So the mind of winter is the mind that is intimate with suffering. And that's not simply to say the mind that has suffered or suffers. It's the mind that knows suffering, that is intimate with the truth of impermanence that causes suffering. It's the mind that, in Misha's words, practices loss. The mind of winter knows loss and absence and suffering, and it knows what it is to be cold a long time. And it has engaged that. It practices turning towards it beholding it, regarding it, listening to it. It practices intimacy with suffering, sitting with it, holding it compassionately, 
hosting it in the guest house of one's being. And cultivating wisdom from its presence. This is the mind of winter that can regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow. The mind that has been cold a long time can behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun. And this mind does not automatically think of any misery in the sound of the wind. So then secondly, the mind of winter is the mind of faith. Mm. In practicing loss, the mind cultivates wisdom. Deep, intuitive, original wisdom, prajna. The wisdom that knows itself and knows its own substance and its own origin. Prajna looks at the tree in winter and understands that although it looks dead, it is still full of life. And this is not a biology lesson. This is not a nature documentary. This is our own innate sense of the the cycle of life. the same wisdom of the tree. That's the same wisdom the tree has and all sentient beings. There's another poem that I love by the poet Philip Larkin called First Sight. And it's about um, lambs that are born in winter, that are born in the snow, little lambs. And they're born to what he calls a vast unwelcome, a vast unwelcome. And that's the wretched cold of winter as he describes it. They're born into this unwelcome, wretched cold of winter. And it's all they know because they're born into it. And then somehow these lambs in the poem, what they do is they just sit close to their mother and they wait. And they don't know what they're waiting for. And and he says in the poem, there's no way that they could grasp it. There's no way that they could grasp knowing what they were waiting for. But what is waiting with them, he says, is Earth's immeasurable surprise. This is the wisdom that is at the core of our being that is available to all of us. And it gets clouded and it gets muddied by the currents of our normal being, of our delusions. And it shines in the wakefulness of our practice. There is winter, there is spring, there is summer, and there is autumn, fall. And there wouldn't be winter 
if there wasn't autumn or spring or summer. And as Dogen Zenji taught in the Genjo Koan, we can think of the seasons of being complete in themselves. Each day, each moment is a complete expression of this season. This is now winter. For me, this is now winter. I can't tell you when it started because somehow it didn't. And I can't tell you when it will stop because there won't be a definitive moment for that either. It's just winter. And if we live winter with an attitude of endurance, this is something we need to get through. That's kind of how it was in my, in my childhood in my family of origin, like winter was not a, a loved thing. You know, it was just something you had to get through. We didn't, we didn't go like skiing or, you know, do things that celebrated the cold weather. We just kind of wrapped up warm and waited for spring. But if we live like that, you know, mourning the loss of the summer and the fall and looking forward to spring, then we miss, we miss the beauty of winter. We miss what's in this moment. The pine trees crusted with snow, the junipers shagged with ice, the rough spruces in the distant glitter of the January sun. And then the mind of winter is the mind without fear. In practicing and cultivating wisdom, we start to clarify our responses to the things that we encounter day to day. From the Heart Sutra, it says, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, the wisdom beyond wisdom. And thus the mind is without hindrance. And without hindrance, there is no fear. And practicing like this, we move beyond our inverted views, beyond projections. This mind of winter can behold, can, can hold can look at and hold this landscape, this empty frozen landscape without recourse to projection, without recourse to misery. There's no fear in this landscape because the intuitive wisdom of rebirth, of the underlying being is always there the life that lies latent. And so somehow there's less to fear. You know, the ways in which a, a, a perspective shift can be so powerful. I was thinking for me when this place where we live in the countryside, it's on a hill. So we're, pretty high up and then we're looking down on a valley and in the valley is the town 
And in the winter, the most mornings, not every morning, but many, many mornings, the valley is completely full of clouds. And last winter, we lived in the town, we lived in the valley. And so we'd wake up every morning and it would just be very, very foggy and kind of cold and damp. And I'd have to get up really early in the morning and take my daughter to school and we'd be walking through the streets and just feeling like, oh, I wish I was back in California. <laughs> and and now we wake up in the morning from this point of view above the town on the hill. And we look down and I just see this valley filled with clouds and it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And we can we can kind of track the movement of the mist as it begins to rise, like during the course of the morning. And I thought, when I was in that, I had no idea how beautiful it could look from a different perspective. And then the mind of winter is the open mind of hospitality. The mind of winter knows what it is. It knows impermanence intimately. It knows that every guest who comes to visit will eventually leave. And it knows that the mind of winter itself is not different from impermanence. Now, for the longest time, I thought that the title of this poem was The Mind of Winter. But actually, the poem is called The Snowman. The Snowman. So who can give us a better lesson on impermanence than a snowman? <laughs> I was tickled by that. So I go back to thinking about this figure in the poem this person in the poem it gave me a whole new perspective this this figure who is listening to the same wind that is the sound of the few leaves and the sound of the land I think of that person sitting in the snow beholding the snow beholding the entire vast landscape of snow as the snow man the poem says the listener is nothing himself, and he is beholding nothing. He knows he is nothing. He is made of snow, which is such a fragile and transitory material. It is subject to quite immediate transformation as soon as the temperature rises. Who has built a snowman and, and never had these thoughts, you know? I'm building the snowman today and it'll probably be gone by the afternoon. <laughs> Definitely by tomorrow. It's a bit like constructing a mandala. All of that work and thought and creative energy, that animation, the little eyes, the nose, the hat, the scarf, the buttons, and then it'll be a puddle very soon. This is the mind of winter. As we live our relationships with our most cherished people, 
our friends, our family, our children, parents, our dear friends, dear friends, soon, very, very soon, we will be puddles of water on the ground. And the mind of winter knows this intimately. The snowman sits quietly. He's peaceful and he's at ease in the midst of this wintry landscape from which it came. And the snowman knows that its own emptiness and its own transience and its own impermanence is manifest in everything that is seen and heard and felt. So from the poem, the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds, nothing that is not there and the nothing that is, nothing beholds nothing. Two nothings, maybe three. The nothing that isn't and then the nothing that is. So there's absence and then there's the presence of absence. So going back to those trees, those those bare trees, does that tree perceive that same sense of absence of its leaves, of its fruit? Where does that tragedy of absence really come from? So that idea, the nothing that is there in the poem, the nothing that is there. The mind of winter then understands the nothing that is there, the nothing that is not nothing, but in the ways that we talk about it in this tradition or that we try to practice it, the no thing, the no clear separation between any two perceived entities, no intrinsic being with a set boundary that holds it apart from other things. So the snowman can can see all of this, can behold it, according to the poem, regard it, listen to it, you know, it just it can contemplate all of this without projecting onto it the miseries that maybe its heart can be subject to. And the snowman can know that it is sitting on and that it is the very ground of creation itself, the very ground of fertility and regeneration and the cyclical arising of new life. So the mind of winter does not endure winter and wait for spring. The mind of winter engages winter, is only winter. And then spring, when it comes, that's, that's a whole other poem. So I'm, I'm going to read the poem one more time to, to close out. 
The Snowman by Wallace Stevens. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener, who listens in the snow and nothing, nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if we have some time for questions or comments, but. Yep. Dave. Thank you so much for your talk, Vanessa. Um, it reminds me very much of uh, some feelings that I had about living in winter a couple of times in my life. Uh, once when I was a fairly young child, we lived in Colorado. And uh, I wasn't very old, but I was old enough to remember California <laughs> and <laughs> not appreciate the snow drifts up to my ears. Um, but we uh, shortly moved back to California and, and then everything was fine until many years later when I got a job in Boston for a couple of years. And I remember thinking how gray and brown and just sort of monochromatic and cold and uncomfortable the winter was. And then being amazed by how much greener the spring was than the spring in California. The spring in California seemed sort of olive drab, and it seemed to me that it was almost like a reward for us enduring this gray winter, this cold, icy winter. Uh, but I, there was a colleague of mine at MIT who had an exactly opposite view of the whole thing. He was just, he just loved everything about winter. I mean, winter sports, he loved skiing and skating and sledding and any he, he, basically anything that involved cold and ice and snow, he was all for it. Mm -hmm. And it really made me sort of stop and, and think about the way that I was looking at winter as being this thing to endure so that you could get to the wonderful green of spring, which is itself wonderful. I mean, when every leaf for miles in all directions is new, green and new, it's a different kind of spring, not just because of the contrast. But I, I, the, the closing line of, of the poem reminds me of a quote from Suzuki Roshi, where he says, the nothing himself, nothing that, not the, that, that isn't there, nothing that is. There's a wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi who says, I discovered that it is necessary, absolutely necessary, to believe in nothing. And I wonder if he's really sort of using the word nothing in the same way. What do you think? Mm.
it, I think the word nothing in our language, at least in English, does has this sort of wonderful, there's this lovely way that we can use it where it can mean the nothing that is and the nothing that isn't. So to believe in nothing and to believe in nothing. Um, so that's that's kind of how it, it kind of comes across to me with that double meaning as well, you know, to um, when when nothing has the, the sense of the emptiness or shunyata um, that we talk about in our practice or when nothing just means to believe in, not to believe in any particular thing, you know, to believe in no thing. Um, that's how it lands with me, but... And with you? Um, well, I I guess I, I I agree with you very much that Suzuki talks about this nothing that we are to believe in as something which has no form and color and exists before all forms and colors appear. So he's not simply talking about the lack of belief, but he's talking about appreciating some particular thing, which is... Mm -hmm this emptiness, this nothing. Mm. I've always thought that, the, that uh, the, the English Buddhist translations that use the word emptiness, I, I, I mean, translation is always a tricky business, but it seems to me that perhaps formlessness is a better idea than mm. nothingness or mm. emptiness. Anyway, thank you very much for your talk, Vanessa. Thank you, Dave. experienced wonder just from the moment I was I was born practically I was born in the winter and grew up you know loving whatever season it was because it was it was all so exciting to me to see that um, the tree that was bare you know uh, at one time suddenly when I looked up I could see sunlight coming through leaves and I could see the variations of color um, and even though I lived in the city, there were trees and there, there was a sense of nature around us. And um, I, you know, I, I can't, I would be lying if I said that I'm not happy to live in California now. Uh, because I think as an adult, perhaps winter would be a lot more of a burden, uh, you know, for us. But uh, as a child, um, it just was, it was just another, it was another part of the world to love, uh, to, to love the snow, um, to love the autumn when the leaves fell and, and crunched the leaves as you walked along the sidewalk, um, and to see uh, the leaves, you know, fall and the trees be bare, and then in spring, just be able to see that bit of green as they were about to come back and to leave. It, it just, there was, there was beauty uh, to winter to me always. Um, mm. I, you know, I mean, I loved spring and autumn and, and summer as well, but it was just, winter had some sense of magic. Mm. So I, I really appreciated your poems and, and your, the discussion about uh, accepting, accepting winter what it is mm. it's not like oh too bad it isn't spring it's no, no this is what's next this is what's here 
you know, and I think that also speaks to our practice and that we're, we're here to encounter whatever, whatever comes, whatever is here for us to encounter it and interact with it in, you know, in the, the best way that we, that we can, the most sincere way that we can. So I, <laughs> I thank you for your thoughts. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. I mean, it, may, it reminds me, and this is something I was thinking about when I was reflecting on this talk is, you know, there's so many winters, there's so many different ways that people experience winter. And I think for me also in living in California, there was a sort of a, almost a frustration with the subtlety of the change of seasons in some ways, you know, like I kind of wanted that rush of like, yay, spring's here and then summer. And then and it never really felt that different one from the other. And then I, I, you know, I I grew up in the UK and I live in a part of Europe now where, you know, winters are relatively mild and, you know, occasionally it might snow or, you know, occasionally there might be a winter storm, but it's not too much of a challenge logistically or physically or, and then I, I've, I've visited places last year, I got to visit Finland, you know, up in the Arctic circle during the solstice where the sun doesn't even make it above the horizon. You know, there's just a few days during the winter when, um, sorry, a few hours during the day rather when there's a kind of a twilight and then it, it would just go away. There's some places that are completely dark. And then I was just looking at a video on social media recently that somebody who was living um, in the north of Japan had posted, which I'm sure is the case in so many places in the United States as well, where this lady couldn't even open her front door because there was so much snow outside. And then, you know, she spent the whole day breaking her back, shoveling all this snow just that, so she could get out of her house and, and to the, well, I'm presuming to the car, but I don't even know how that would work. Um, I, I spent one, as a young adult, I spent one winter in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, and it was my first, like, real snowy, cold winter and I did not know what it hit me and I came I was on I was an exchange student so I just brought my sort of London clothes which was like you know like relatively light coat for the winter and some you know waterproofs and I I just I couldn't I just hadn't known cold like it I didn't know that parts of your body you could lose feeling in parts of your body and and I didn't know how to dress for it I didn't know <clears throat> that you know there's certain items of clothing would would make it easier to be in that weather so I didn't have gloves or you know I didn't have a, I didn't wear a hat because it just didn't I didn't have that wisdom around extreme cold um so there's, there's so many different ways to to experience that and 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 I've thought a lot you know just about it metaphorically as well so you know whatever the grade of winter that we experience living in the various places that we live or the places that we've come from, our places of origin. There's also the various metaphorical, emotional, spiritual, um, you know, our life's winters, the political winters, you know, a, a sort of a, a winter state of mind regarding events in the world. Um, I think that, you know, for me, this this metaphor really stretches quite far, and 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 in all of those cases, I I take solace 
in the cyclical nature. Thank you, Lee. I see a thumbs up from Dan. I don't know if that means you have a question or you're just vibing with the winter. Um, it was great. It's always fun to hear the um, portrait that you that you create for us. That's a um, such an inviting mix of poetry and dharma. I was thinking that the uh, nothing that is and the nothing that isn't is really a reflection of what a poet does. A poet has to work with nothing, <laughs> a blank page, and see the fecundity of nothingness in order, in order to actually um, execute a poem. It has to, you have to have a lot of faith and trust in nothingness in order to write anything. And when the writing is concluded, it just returns to, to what it was before a blank page, a blank page perhaps for someone else. But the um, most potent reaction I had to what you said was, I remembered as a boy, I grew up in Massachusetts, and I would love to just wander in the, in the woods during snow time. And I loved looking at the boughs just fill, filled with snow. One time I was walking, I just heard this minute noise. And all of a sudden, this humongous bough um, broke in front of me and it just utterly terrified me because it was preceded with just the tiniest little sound and then this bow just came down with I don't know maybe a half a ton of snow and it made me think of how, how important shattering is in our practice and how necessary it is because it's so easy to plateau um, in sitting for years and years because it feels good and it's very joyous and you start to let go of the load of yourself. But the, those shattering experiences are, are so full of, of value to our practice. And I realize it's helpful to recall how terrified I was of that experience that I was utterly unprepared for. And being utterly unprepared for that bow breaking was one of the most valuable um, preludes to spiritual practice that I ever had as a, as a young boy. Mm, what a powerful image. Thank you, Dan. I'm glad you weren't standing directly under the bow when it happened. It sounds like the, the, what, what the image that, as I'm imagining it, I'm sort of just imagining that last, that, that final little snowflake that broke the bow, <laughs> the, the, you know, the tiny sound and then just you know, the power of the one tiny snowflake. Lovely, thank you. Good, good seeing you. You too. Hello, Diane. Hi, Vanessa. What a beautiful talk. Um, when winter comes, I want to join the animals that hibernate and just go to sleep until spring. Um, the grayness and the lack of sunlight really gives me that sort of. Um, I guess they call it sad, seasonal effectiveness. Mm -hmm. I love the image of the snowman. I mean, in the sense that the snowman is made from the elements of water. And then when the snowman melts, 
the snowman becomes water again and joins the earth. And I think in a way, you know, we're all melting. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. all in the process of melting and becoming one day again part of the earth from which we came. Um, I'm also thinking about spring and when my Cecil Bruner roses start blooming in front of my house, there's just a profusion of beautiful pink flowers and a wonderful scent. And, and I love it when I, the leaves start popping out and then turn green and then the buds. And it's so weird because it happens around my birthday. And when I go out and I look at them, it makes me cry because mm-hmm. I know as the blooms appear and the, and and then the blooms begin to fall and they die. And so I I also perceive their death while well, I'm appreciating the blooming and the new life. So it's all a cycle. Mm. So in the moment that they're blooming, you you hold the whole cycle in mind. I also perceive that you know, they're not going to last. Nothing lasts. Mm-hmm. The beauty that we see is is transient and temporary, just just as our lives are, just as the mm-hmm. snow. So, anyway, just my thoughts. Thank you, Diane. At any point in the cycle. We can hold the whole cycle. Because we know that we know the whole cycle. You know the whole cycle. So at any point the rest of it is all there. That's that's a that's a lovely observation. Thank you. Hernan, hello. Hello, Vanessa. It's nice to see you. Hi. Thank you so much for your beautiful talk and the description, the Noel description of winter. It made me, it transported me to the winters when I was, uh, when I lived in Chile. Mm. Uh, in the farm there, what you described is it evoked that. But and, and also it caught my attention when you talk about perspectives, when you talk about the perspective of living in the fog uh, in the town and now living uh, on a hill, looking down and having a different experience. So I think about perspectives uh, in our practice and it came to mind another perspective that is the one that we are living now. I live in Florida. And in Florida, winter is all the opposite. Mm. Summer is the season that is almost you have to endure sometimes. Many days you have to be inside the home with air conditioner, and you cannot be out in the sun very much because, I mean, very long because you can stand it. And then winter comes, and winter is perfect. Winter is the perfect season here. Winter is like spring in California. It's just perfect. Everything is perfect. No rain, no hurricanes. 
perfect temperature. Orchids, flowers, I mean, the orchids mm. come up in, in winter and they are very beautiful. So let me think about perspective and what do you think in our, uh, in our practice is the role of perspective, for example, in the sense if we get attached to a perspective. And yes, that, I mean, when I hear you and I realize that my reality here is completely different in winter. Winter is a different thing here. And what do you think about that thinking about perspectives, about perspectives in our practice? Mm. The one we may think or the one we may live? Mm -hmm. I think the, I think practice enables us or allows us or invites us to be so much more fluid with perspective and perspective taking and to really um, like cultivate that understanding of what it is to take different perspectives, you know. Um, I think to be able to be taken out of our perspective, you know, whatever our normal assumption have been and to be given a new point of view about something. And I think that starts with ourselves. I think that starts with sitting practice and vigilance towards one's own being, one's own processes to understand that kind of, that constant shifting that is taking place, you know, even, even in ourselves, even the way that perspective shifts on a day-to-day -day basis, according to mood or according to place, according to company or situation. Um, it can be so subtle, but to see it at work, um, I think at least for myself and in my own practice lends much more of a lightness around any particular perspective I might be taking or, or you know, thinking I'm owning to sort of ask, well, is that so? How will it be tomorrow? How will it be if I'm over here or over there? And sometimes, you know, it's not so easy to do and there's some <clears throat> ways of being that are so deeply ingrained. It takes, a, it takes really a long time to encounter the transience of some ways of being, you know, some, some perspectives that we have. But I think the, I think it's a wonderful practice to deliberately try and change perspective, you know, even just by climbing a hill, <laughs> mm. be it metaphorically, be it actually, you know, just to kind mm -hmm. of have that experience and reflect on it. And what does it look like from over here? What does the world look like when I stand on my head? What does the world look like when I'm sitting down, you know, when I'm smaller than I usually am, when I'm bigger than I usually am? <clears throat> and we can learn so much about perspective by being curious with other people as well and really trying to understand what other perspectives look and feel like. <clears throat> Curiosity is so important. And there's endless, it, it, it's endless. The perspectives are endless. I think bearing that in mind too. 
there's in in our in our culture there's this um notion around re- reframing that people talk mm-hmm. about a lot i'm thinking of framing because i can see that came to me because of the frame behind you <laughs> in the picture and i thought oh framing reframing you know when we're encouraged to reframe something and i'm more, i'm i'm sometimes a little cautious around that you know with regards perspective taking or perspective changing um we can we can reframe anything to make it more palatable or you know to make something easier you know we can do that but then the danger is we get stuck in that frame and um and just you know just the idea of a frame so constrictive i much prefer i much prefer the word perspective i much prefer the idea of a point of view when we frame something we we cut out a lot and sometimes that can be very helpful and it can be quite necessary but i think uh i think aspiring towards perspective and perspective shift in the long run can be a lot more useful or a lot more powerful yeah mm. thank you thank you anis Thank you. I think we can wrap up. This talk was brought to you by the Canando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canando.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G.